And then the other side is you want to become an operator. And in that case, I can't tell you how often I've sat down with people. And by the end of the conversation, if this is not the right space for you, you're looking at this wrong. And that's part of it is people think it's easy to build these spaces out and lease them up, but there's a ton of marketing that goes into it. There's a ton of brand awareness. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale, the second season of Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So Ready to Scale is our new second season here where we focus on the business side of real estate. So namely, we're basically going to talk about, you know it, APS of real estate, its assets, process, and strategy. So when you listen, you can basically learn from a lot of very successful businessmen and real estate investors and apply those concepts to your business and scale fast. If you enjoy the podcast, take a minute to rate us. It's really important for us. And you can also find the show notes at my website, www.elliperlman.com. So let's get the show started. Our guest today is Giovanni Pallavicini. And Giovanni is the president of Fronteras Commercial Real Estate, a boutique real estate brokerage firm, and has been involved in commercial real estate for over 17 years, so he's very experienced. His career focus has been on flexible workspace industry, which is the co-working spaces that we know, where he provides direct consulting exclusively to operators on overall real estate and business strategies. So prior to that, Giovanni spent five years as a regional real estate director for Regis, where he first applied his retail knowledge to the flexible workspace segment. In addition, Giovanni is well known for his work with the Scottish Rite Hospital for Children and a number of other nonprofit organizations. He holds a bachelor's degree from Dallas Baptist University and a master's in real estate from the University of Texas, Arlington. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Giovanni to the show. Hey, Giovanni. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm doing great. How are you? It's, it's great. It's almost the weekend, right? Almost. It's Friday. It's 3 p.m. right now. So almost. I mean, my Friday looks like a Monday without a lot of emails. But yeah, I'm definitely excited to shift gears and move to the weekend. That's for sure. And so you, you've done a lot of you know, interesting things. And I think the one thing that is interesting, at least it's something that I feel very passionate about and I'm very curious about, is the co-working space. As an asset class, we know about co-working space. We've seen it. Some of us are actually using it and you've been doing that for years. So can you take us back in time and talk about, you know, where and when did you see that trend starting? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the interesting part about 
the co-working space or what, what we in the real estate industry use is flexible workspace is because it's got so many different dynamics to it. It's got different asset classes even within the flexible workspace because you've got the traditional executive suite, which is what we're used to seeing, which is more of a hard wall office component, which is great for counselors, attorneys, CPAs, things like that. And then we have on the opposite end, we have a very open, collaborative, it's, I call it a fishbowl environment where the walls are glass and so you can see everything. So it's hard for some of those professionals to work in that environment, but it's great for the tech industry or people that work in team environments that are looking for a vibrant type of area. But the interesting part about this industry is that it's almost a retailer that happens to go in an office setting because the, the key metrics of retail are important, which is visibility, access, parking, so many of those things that are important in the retail industry. And then the office side of it is, is where people are coming to work and grow entrepreneurship industries or you know, just stabilized uh, corporations. And so there's two main drivers that have led to the growth in the flex workspace industry as of late. And that's number one, a lot of people don't realize that there's a new accounting standard that came out internationally that requires for corporations to carry their real estate liabilities of their long-term on the books. So for example, an IBM, a JP Morgan, those large type of corporations, if they've got a long-term lease within an office building, they have to carry that on their accounting books. And so the flexibility of a flexible workspace allows for them to keep it off the books because it's short-term and doesn't take as much capital. The other side is obviously the way we work and technology, what allows for us to be having this communication from across the country and what allows for us to work from anywhere where we are is the technology side of it. You no longer have to be in a corporate location with an enterprise server. Now those enterprise servers allow for us to work off our iPhones, our laptops, our iPads, you name it. And so what's happened is it's all about having a quality of life now. And so unfortunately, I hate to admit this and you probably do too, but the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is we check our cell phones. And the last thing we do before we go to sleep is we check our cell phones. And so that's part of what's happened within these corporations is before you used to send an email or receive an email at 4.30 and you weren't expected to respond till the next day at 9, 9.30 when you got in and got situated. Well, that's not the case anymore. We're responding to emails around the clock. And so part of that is the quality of life has been affected. And so it's very important to have that for corporations now. The interesting part is before real estate decisions were made between a CEO or the C-suite and a real estate director. Well, that's no longer the case. You now have HR director that has more clout over decision-making on locations than the real estate director because what's the most expensive asset for a company is its, its employees. And so the HR director is tasked with keeping them happy and everything that involves that side of it. And so it's important for them to have a say on the spaces they go into. And so those are the things really driving the flexible work workspace today. Yeah. And I think that was a really excellent summary. It also answered my next question about what makes it this industry, you know, so successful and such high demand. So that was very helpful. When do you think the industry is going? Uh, obviously, now we have WeWork, we have Regis and all those big brand names, but I see a lot of small operators that basically say, you know what, we can do it. So where do you see the industry is going? Because I'm pretty sure it's been there for over a decade now, and now it's extremely popular. 
And when I'm looking at the market, the first thing that I'm thinking about is, boy, there's so much competition. The market is so fragmented. What do you think about that? Yes. And the interesting part is, yes, people are calling it a new phenomenon, but it's really not. If you go back to Central America, Europe, certainly parts of Asia. And so this type of industry has been going on forever. It was just done on a retail basis. In Mexico, we called it mercados. In Europe, it's just called a overall trading post. I mean, here in the US, I mean, you're from California, so you got a huge Hispanic demographic there. And that's those what those bazaars or mercados are, is you have different tenants operating within a large space, all doing some kind of trade. And so this has been going on longer than we've even realized it. And then we just stepped in and put it into an office type of setting in the late 80s. And Mark Dixon, the CEO, found a need for that and created Regis at the time. And it's grown to Regis has got over 3,500 locations now. So they've been around forever. So it's interesting because people are like, is this industry going to survive? What happens with the recession? All these things. Well, it's been around for a while now. And to your point, yes, what's happened is new competitors have come in that are offering new product types and different focuses. A great example is this is ex- exactly what the hospitality industry is from the standpoint of you, if you go to LAX airport where you are or DFW here in town and you look up hotels, you have how many different brands, even within the flags. I mean, you get a Hilton and you've got how many different flags under the Hilton or the Marriott. And so each of those asset classes offers a different need for each of those people. And so let's call Regis in a traditional executive suite model, a motel or an extended stay. Well, now we've got AC hotels or the A-lofts or these more boutique kind of trendy hotels that have popped up. And so within the flexible workspace industry, it's just allowing people a different product type to choose. Because I gave the example earlier is, you know, there's, there's professions that can't office in a trendy, open environment that offers that collaboration. Number one, there's limited privacy. Number two, there's a lot of energy and hype going on. I mean, some of these, if we start getting into amenities, I mean, some of these spaces are offering beer on tap around the clock. And it's like, in some cases, it's almost like a frat star environment as opposed to people are looking for a professional environment. And so it all comes down to what are you trying to achieve? What kind of business are you running? And so ultimately to your question is, unfortunately, not all these groups are going to survive. So it's the groups that understand their demographic, understand their business model, understand what they're trying to achieve. Those guys are going to survive and and flourish and do well. And so that kind of gets into your, you know, we've kind of tapped in on the asset part of your APS. And, you know, now we're getting into the strategy side of stuff of, understanding what your strategy is. And that's a big part that comes back to the retail world again is understanding who am I going after? And I've heard a couple of your previous podcasts and you're talking about you do all your homework on the demographics. What's the growth in the submarket you're going into? What are the incomes? What are the education levels? So many of those parameters that allow for retailers to choose where they go and why they go. Rooftops is another big example is, I mean, who's coming to our space and why? So when I create that strategy, it's a very much a retail strategy. It's understanding the needs and then you create the strategy based off of that. And so I do everything based off of mapping. So I've got a mapping team that will decide, okay, we're seeking everyone with 150 plus in income. That'll be shaded on a map. And then we're looking for people to have a home of 450,000 or more. That'll be a different type of shading 
and then it will be overlapped with, call it, a daytime density. So we know where everyone's going to work during the day. And so based off of that, then we plot our competitors, and then we figure out, okay, who do we want to go head-to-head with? Where do we want to go? I mean, you see the Fuse logo behind my head. This is one of my clients. They actually have a podcast room in one of their spaces, but their model is a blue ocean model. So we're going after areas where there isn't competition. Going back to retail, a good example is McDonald's. If you go stand in front of McDonald's, you're going to see two or three other burger chains and a bunch of other fast food. And so what happens is McDonald's has a very robust real estate program. And so they do all this homework and then everyone else just follows them. It's the same way you go look at Home Depot and Lowe's. They're typically by each other, CVS and Walgreens. Can you explain to the listeners who don't know about the blue ocean strategy? Can you share a few sentences just to give a little bit more of a background of what it means? Yeah, for sure. So there's, there's a blue ocean, the red ocean, and the red ocean is where there's a ton of competition. There's a lot of these groups that flourish off of other competitors. I just gave an example. McDonald's is a good one. Pharmacies, the home repair type of world with Lowe's and Home Depot. And so that's what happens is they cause the consumer to choose between one or the other. And so they play off of each other, which works well. I mean, we just mentioned it with the airports and the hotels. But in this industry, what's happened is the downtown areas, the uptowns in most of our submarkets get very saturated with competitors. And so then our model is the blue ocean model, which is the opposite. We're going out where no one's gone yet, where we know the growth is growing, where we know the, the, the rooftops are going, we know the incomes are there, but no one has gone out to those locations yet because they're focused on the vibrant, trendy places. And so that's part of what our strategy is. And and there's nothing wrong with doing the the red ocean or the blue ocean. It just comes down to how comfortable are you with your brand? What is your brand? Who are you targeting? Why are you targeting them? And so the blue ocean just allows for us to have a better feel of our market and our environment. And it's controlled because we know exactly where we're going and who we're going after. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely an interesting you know, strategy. It's not easy to implement, I can tell you that from experience, uh, but it's a very interesting strategy. And so when your clients are, you know, let's assume that they found, they've done the research, they found the right place, the right market or space for it, they usually just purchase a building and convert it to a flexible office space or do they decide to build something from the grounds up brand new, beautiful building and create it, you know, as a flexible workspace to begin with. Yeah. So that's a different side of the strategy is understanding what the operator is trying to ultimately achieve. And so there's a lease arbitrage model and on that side of stuff, and that's what Regis and WeWork and other groups do is they go out and find space that's for lease and they lease space. They get money from the landlord to build it out. And that's a cheaper way of building the brand. And it's about putting dots on the map. How quickly can we grow? What are we trying to achieve? And then there's another side of it, which is actual the the real estate play in ownership, which is what several of my groups do. And that's going out and finding a building that makes sense and building out the space the way you want it. Obviously, it's a more expensive play because you're having to buy the real estate. You're having to obviously pay for the loan side of it. And the due diligence is different than going into an existing building. And so it just comes down to, is there someone trying to grow the brand and that's their sole focus is putting dots on the map? Or is it a real estate play, which is ultimately what most of my guys are trying to do?
So I think that's a good place to move to our third part, which is talking about the process. And you mentioned that basically your clients, what they do is that they find the building and they customize it to make it a flexible workspace. How does it work in terms of the process? So let's say you identify an area and then zoomed in and found one or two buildings that are good candidates. How does it look like from an investor's point of view once they found this building and they want to make it a shared or flexible office space? How does it look like? Yeah, no, for sure. And so I'll give you an idea with an actual space we're looking at currently. We're looking at buying a building for $8 million. That's just to purchase the building. It's a shell space. In addition to that, we've got to put another $4 million into building out the space into what we want it to. So you're looking at a $12 million type of play. And so what's happened is we'll go out and seek investors for a portion of that. We'll put up some of our own money. But in addition, we're bringing it. Essentially, we're syndicating, which is what you do in a lot of cases from what I've heard. And so you're bringing in investors as a limited partner. And they're, they're participating on the investment side of the business. And so our job is to go in, build out the space, put in an operation, fill it up. And ultimately, from there, we decide whether we want to do a, a triple net type of sale, which means we're, we're signing a, a lease with ourselves and then selling the building and, and selling it to an investor that's essentially just getting a coupon clipping income stream as opposed to selling the entire operation and the real estate combined. Got it. Got it. And what part of the process is the most challenging part? Honestly, the most challenging part is sitting down with individual groups, uh, the operators, and understanding what their need is. And you know it well. You, we often sit down with investors and you ask them, what are they trying to do? And they're saying, we're trying to make money. Well, okay, I understand that. But what are you comfortable with? Are you a long-term holder? you a short-term holder, what kind of funds are you playing with? But that's part of the strategy conversation that happens on the front end. Before creating that strategy, you have to understand what are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? What is your end goal? And so it goes back to some of the points we've already discussed is my strategy depends on, are you trying to play the real estate game? Are you trying to play the lease arbitrage model? Are you trying to grow the brand and sell at some point to one of these bigger guys like WeWork or Regis or other groups? Or ultimately, are you a long-term holder? And so there's so many things that come into play. And so my favorite part of the process and the hardest part of the process is the psychology of the interview and understanding what the ultimate goal is. Because a lot of these groups think they know what they're looking for, but a lot of them don't. And so on the front end, we're essentially asking the right questions to lead and guide them towards a strategy because you know it well, entrepreneurs love seeing shiny objects. And so anytime something new pops up, they're like, oh, what about that? And it's like, no, look, this is not on a real estate strategy. That doesn't mean we can't sit back down, reevaluate and decide differently whether we do it or not. But let's stick to our strategy. And this is middle of the fairway type of deal we're looking at as opposed to confusing things. Yeah, absolutely. And and I see it a lot where people are, they get very distracted and they have the shiny object syndrome. And it is tempting, I have to tell you, even as an investor, you know, you have opportunity zones and you have all those new types of real estate investments and strategies. And I think it's really important to stick to what you know, or if you want to have a taste of something new, at least partner with someone that knows what they're doing. So you're not trying something for the first time, especially when there's investors' money on the line. So you have to be careful there. And so if somebody is listening now and and they're saying, you know what, 
flexible space, that's interesting. I think I can do it or I'm interested in learning more. What would you say is the first few steps that they need to do in order to get in the game and start purchasing flexible workspaces? Yeah, I think, again, it's the same thing we just discussed. It's understanding what you're trying to achieve and why. Are you looking to invest in the industry? And if that's the case, there's groups that are looking for limited partners to invest in their deals as they roll out. There's obviously the real estate play of it. And you go find a building that this may work for and go find an operator to either sign a lease with you or do some type of management agreement. And then the other side is you want to become an operator. And in that case, I can't tell you how often I've sat down with people and by the end of the conversation, this is not the right space for you. You're looking at this wrong. And that's part of it is people think it's easy to build these spaces out and lease them up, but there's a ton of marketing that goes into it. There's a ton of brand awareness. And that's the hard part is really knowing what you're doing. And so... The first part I would say is go do your homework, not just because you read an article that WeWork is valued at 40 billion or Regis is at 4.2 or anything else. I mean, you have to understand what you're getting into. And I think that's part of where the interview process and understanding what people are trying to achieve comes into play. And back to your question, why it's so difficult is because there's people that read something and think it's easy just because someone else is finding success at it. But does it fit your skill set? What's your background? Ultimately, what are you trying to achieve? This is not a hands-off type of business. It's very hands-on, hospitality-driven. A lot of people don't think about that. This is not a, I'm going to make an investment and walk away if you truly are jumping all in. And so that's what I'd say is if people are interested, I mean, the best way to jump into this space is on the investor side, unless you have that that type of background, but there's a lot of opportunities for investors as this industry grows. All right. That's a very solid tip. And I think it's really interesting and important to understand that. I think with many asset classes, you're not just going to buy, unless you're a truly passive investor, and you let other people manage the deal, there's no, you know, I'm going to write a check, I'm going to buy this building and just just walk away and I'm going to make money when I sleep. It just doesn't happen this way. So Giovanni, my last question is, what would be your number one tip for someone who wants to not only purchase flexible workspaces, but also scale the business? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to beat this one in is <laughs> understanding your strategy. What are you trying to achieve? And ultimately, you know this well enough, you make your money when you purchase or when you get into something, not when you get out of it. And so ultimately, that's what happens too many times is people jump into an industry, jump into a business, and they'll say, we'll figure it out as we go. Well, it doesn't work that way. There's so many things to figure on the front end in this industry. It's understanding, again, what is your brand? Who are you targeting? Why are you targeting them? What makes you gives you the ability to target this audience? And so... That's the hardest part, and that's the most important part to understand is going into it, what it is that you are trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. I mean, mm-hmm. the old Simon Sinek, what's your why? Yeah, exactly. What's your why? Know your why. That's very important. Well, Giovanni, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your knowledge with us. It was really interesting. If investors or listeners would want to reach out to you and get in touch, where can they find you? Yeah. So there's, there's multiple ways. Obviously, you can go to my website, which is fronterasre.com. So that's F-R-O-N-T-E-R-A-S-R-E.com. Or you can email me, same thing, gp at the fronterasre.com. And I don't even mind. You can text me. I'll respond most of the time at 214-566-9546. 
but always happy to help people out and answer any questions that I can. All right, Giovanni, thank you so much again. Thank you so much for your time. All right. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.